Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Monday morning, the 4th of April. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The cost of living is the single most important issue to people in this country. That's according to an opinion poll published in yesterday's Sunday Independent. We wake to the horror this morning of war crimes in Ukraine where Russia has been using illegal weapons, targeting civilian buildings and civilians themselves. As Russian forces relocate troops from towns like Busha, they leave behind a trail of death and destruction. Russia appears to have committed genocide. Blankets of corpses and mass graves are being uncovered. Girls and women raped and killed. The bodies of men in civilian clothing, hands tied behind their backs, men shot in the back of their heads. Despite the horror of war, just 20% of people told that poll in the Sunday Independent that the war should be the government's number one priority and that's 20% fewer than a previous poll when 40% of people said the war should be the government's biggest priority. It's the consequence of war on living in Ireland and the cost of living in this country that is of most concern to most people now. 65% of people surveyed said the government's biggest priority should be tackling inflation and help reduce soaring price increases. Well, let's talk about this uh, this morning. Peter Fitzpatrick, Independent TD for Louth and East Meath is on the line. Good morning to you, Peter. Thanks for joining us. Does that reflect what you're hearing from people? Michael, there's two words come to my mind, Michael, and the word is, is fuel poverty and profiteering. Michael, in my consistency office over the last number of weeks, they meant that people who just can't afford to pay their bills and they feel really, really let down by the government. And you did mention, Michael, that inflation. Inflation at the moment, come back, the, 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 the latest date we have is in February. Inflation has hit an all-time low in the last over 21 years of 5.6%. And it, when you just look at it, it really is frightening. Everything seems to be going up in price. Like transport's going up in price, petrol, diesel, airfares, house and water, electricity, gas. No matter every day you listen to the radio, you listen to the programmes there at the moment, is everything's going up. And people are really starting to panic. And in fairness, I think now it's about time that the government stepped in there at the moment. Is. Like, what really now, Michael, is there's a, big, there's a big campaign going on at the moment by, and I mentioned the company, Electric Island. And uh, we, we, had, we had the crash back in 2010. 
we had uh, the Brexit, we had the pandemic, now with the energy garden. Now, these companies overran, and like in 2010, a lot of people couldn't afford to pay the electricity bills. Well, a lot of people then, when they, they went away and they got this pay as you go meters. And what they done was, and the fairness to the companies at the time is, they allowed the people to pay uh, the standard rate and they give them a 5% discount. Now, all of a sudden, they're, they're calling to these people and saying, listen, we've got a new smart energy campaign going on at the moment, is, and you'll end up paying less. And we'll, and we'll give the existing customers 60 euros, and if you're a new customer, we'll give you 150 euros. And I, I went and I, I talked to one of my consistents on Friday about this here. And when we looked at the small print, is like, you know, they were given a 5 or 10 discount, that's gone. So, th- so, so that means uh, you're paying an extra 70 euros. Plus, when you look at the small print as well, they're also charging 37.5 cents a day to use the services. So basically, people who pay pay as a go are being asked to pay 207 euros extra a year. Mm. Like to me, that that's that, that's totally nothing wrong. And my consistency challenged the person on the phone and said, "Would you do it?" And the answer told me and said, "I wouldn't do it." And I, and I, I'm lucky enough, Michael, at the moment. I, I I drive an electric car at the moment, Michael. And, and if I look back there and and, and and before Christmas, diesel was one thirty. Now diesel is averaging 190. Mm. And the government is making 47% profit on that there, which is 90 cents. And as a result, an average car fill up would, would, would take about 55 litres. So basically, is, if you get 190, multiply that there by 55 litres, it comes to 104 euros. Mm. If you could buy it before Christmas, it was 130, multiply by 55, that comes to 71. So that's an increase of 33 euros. So that means the government is making an extra 14 euros in every fill. Can the government not just turn men over for the next few months and say, listen, things are really, really bad at the moment. Let's give the people and the business a rebate of, say, the 14 euros. Like, they, they, they have enough money coming in at the moment. Is, but the people are really, really bleeding there at the moment. Is, well, as you say, people are suffering. People are feeling it. And everybody is acutely aware of how everything is getting so much more expensive. But what can the government do? What can the government do to give that 14 euro back, for example? Well, Michael, uh, they didn't give a rebate back. They didn't give you tax. There's no problem whatsoever. It, it's a very simple way, Michael. Like, when, 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 when you pay your 104 euros for your 55 litres, whatever it is, you've got a receipt. You can, you can produce a receipt and get your 14 euros back. Because the government is making a profit of 23 euros. And, and as I said, you look at the price of, of oil, the price of electricity, everything has gone through the roof. And if you look at it, all these companies that supply the gas, supply the oil... But that would, in fact, be a reduction in VAT, wouldn't it? And you know that there's a problem about that, and the government uh, has sought a a derogation from the European Commission. Uh, And hopefully there will be movement on that, uh, and hopefully there will be uh, a a pan-European approach to this, because it's not just Ireland that's suffering, because inflation has and had been hitting uh, every corner of uh, the globe uh, before the war, and now the war is making it uh, a lot worse. To a large extent, the government's hands are tied and it's introduced an awful lot of measures which uh, I imagine you'd have supported uh, Peter Fitzpatrick uh, two billion to help people out uh, and Eamon Ryan says he's bringing forward a package of measures uh, to help people with the cost of living uh, that the public service obligation the PSO uh, on electricity charges uh, that would save 57 euro a year if uh, that was abolished there may even be a negative obligation so that could result in even higher uh, savings for people Michael, I agree 200%, Michael, but it's now that people need it. Like, I, I welcome the 200 But that's happening today, yeah. yeah. But I think, it's, Michael, that's fantastic, Michael. But my biggest fear there at the moment is, and I keep mentioning the, the, the energy company, is they're just increasing their prices. 
there's not a day passes that the prices are going up and increasing and increasing and increasing. But we have to stop this. It's proper tearing. It, but it, that's it, an international it, it, price that's the, at the root of it. They're paying more, so they're charging more. Yeah, but, Mike, but, but, but they're still making more profit. It, 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 I know they're paying more, but it's really need to put the, to put the profit up, 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 up and up. I keep saying there at the moment is, like, you know, the people kind of like and sit in the office there, and I do listen to people, and, and, and your program, and people are listening to your program, and mm. people are looking for a bit of help. But the, the government, like, even for example, is, like, that what the people in this community and this country has done with the Ukraine war has been online. The tens of thousands of people that's coming into this into Ireland have been yeah. well looked after. Like, but, but the thing is, I raised in the door there last week. A lot of families in our surrounding areas has gone up to Dublin Airport, went up and took Ukraine families into their homes. Mm. Now, all, Mike and I got phone calls there last week from, from people, yep. especially from committees. Oh, the and the generosity and charity is fabulous. And I have to give them 10 out of 10. Mm. But the tall men said to me, they can't afford to keep them in their homes. The price of electricity has gone up, the price of food has gone up, and they're getting no help from the government. I raised it twice in the door in the last, in the last week, and I, I, I said to the teacher, the teacher, like, you know, it's great mm. that, 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 that like, you know, me, Michael McGrath told me and said there's, there's hundreds of million to be given out. But the only people that's getting money at the moment is, is the hotels, the B&Bs. Yeah, why, why, why is that the case? Um, Lorcan Sir, who, as you know, is an expert on housing, says that there's about 5,700 vacant properties in each local authority area. So Louth County Council should have in around five or 6,000 vacant properties which it could make available uh, or at least could look at making available to the refugees coming into this country who are in desperate need of uh, some help. Uh, by the way, about two weeks ago at this stage, uh, this programme wrote to Louth County Council and we asked Louth County Council uh, could it tell us what it was doing because there was a request to the local council from the Department of Housing to, to source some vacant properties or properties that could be put to use. Uh, as I say, Lorcan Sura says that on average there'd be about 5,700 vacant properties in each local authority area. So what has Louth County Council come up with? Uh, as I say, we wrote to them about two weeks ago to ask them what the response would be to the Department of Housing. They ignored our query. Uh, they did actually uh, tell local newspapers about a, a week ago what they were doing. And what they're doing is dismal beyond belief. If if what Lorcan Soros says is true, that there's the potential to make uh, five or 6,000 properties available, uh, they've come up with places for 16 refugees at the Franciscan Friary on Lawrence Street and they say they're uh, looking for requests. By the way, we also uh, invited, when, when the council ignored us, uh, we, we were just asking, you know, could you tell us because people are interested and we also said, do you want to come on the programme and appeal to people so that, that maybe they'd be able to help you get some uh, properties uh, so that you could help the refugees. Uh, do, what do you think that says about the council, Peter Fitzpatrick? Well, Michael, I was in a Zoom call last week with, with the county manager and all, a, lot of, a lot of directors from the Lake County Council. And the questions you asked, I raised the questions. And as I, as I, as I said in the door there a week ago... Have they no interest? Michael, what, what, what they're doing is they're waiting for directions from the government. Now, I spoke to the Department... But should the of, Department of Housing ask them, what, what, what can they do? Can they identify? And all they've done is come up with 16 places. Nearly 20,000 people have come into this country. Have they no interest in Louth County Council? They didn't even have the decency to to respond to a media query about it. Michael, give me a second, Michael, I'll tell you what's happening. I, I was on a Zoom call last week with the council. I, I've asked, I asked the question, what, what's happening? And Michael couldn't give me an answer. 
And uh, I, I told him I was on the Department of Children, I was on the Department of Justice, I was on the Department of Family Affairs. And every time you get on these departments, they told me to contact my local authorities. And I got onto my local authorities and I explained to them that there is families coming in here to to to, to the surrounding areas. I, and I give I, I give two examples. My local newspapers contacted me last week and asked me to give a couple of names, which I did, and a couple of the families actually spoke. I I, I the family in Dark that took in uh, six or eight little cranes at the moment. Yeah. And, uh, and the position was, uh, they just can't afford to keep them going. Mm. So I asked the crisis, I said, what's the situation? Are they entitled to HAP? Are they entitled to rent allowance? Mm. What's, what's happening? And basically, Michael had told me they didn't know what was happening. They're waiting for directions from, from the government. But the government and, asked and, them to identify places. Yeah. Uh, then, then, then a council official took it upon themselves, apparently, and thought the sports centre in Dundalk would be a good place. The council said, what? Uh, 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 and said, no, that's not happening. Uh, and then they issued a statement on Friday saying that they're preparing the sports centre an emergency centre for up to 50 refugees to sleep on a wooden floor. What are they? Have they any interest in Louth County Council in what the refugees are doing? Well, like, even the problem of the refugees, it's the homeless people that we have in yeah. the as well. We, we, we do, my, my biggest problem is you can walk around any street in the dog and you would find a vacant property. And in fact, and, and these vacant properties could be in the go for six months, 12 months, or 18 months. Yeah. And when you're in, when you're in the county council, they say that the house is not up to standard. They have to, go out to get, get their engineers. So the house isn't up to standard. So they're going to get people to sleep on the floor. And when the people are sleeping on the floor and living in a sports hall, that means the sports hall can't be used by people who would usually use such a valuable resource. Sure, there's no logic in that, is there? Well, Michael, as I said, there's people sleeping in the floors, there's people sleeping in the streets. There's, there's, there's local people from the dock that actually can't go on the council list. What happens is, see, there's, there's all this red tape. I can't understand it. Like, there's families, there's families in, in, in the dock and surrounding areas that breaks up. And what happens then is, right, there's a husband or wife or somebody leaves the house. So when they go down to the local authorities and ask for help, the host, local authorities come and say, listen, what do you need help for? Sure, you have a house. Mm. But the marriage broke down and, 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 and they would let them people sleep on the streets until the paperwork is done. Would they really? The social, it's like, oh, Michael, oh, it's God, happening. Yeah, yeah. Michael, you could then the social... Welfare. And who pays, who pays people to make these decisions? Michael, I'll be honest, I'm really, really... And, and, uh, it just happened, this is really going on for the last number of weeks there at the moment. Yeah. Like, for example, I have two young people at the moment who, who, who fell in with their families. Uh, trying, to, trying to get them on the council list is, is, is being unreal. Yeah. But then the social welfare, and you try to get them a bit of social welfare, the first thing to ask them, what address has it got? They said there's no address for living in the streets. Right. They can't get social welfare. They can't get under house list. And I will yeah. be honest with you, we don't know how lucky we are in, in the loudest surrounding areas. Yeah. Only for the charities in the, in the local areas that's putting food... But don't, don't, don't we pay uh, people to work in the council to do that work? Don't we, quite handsomely, I think, some of these people are paid. Well, can I ask you a question? Who's accountable? Who did they go there? Like, who's checking up then? No matter where you go and you ask mm. the question, right? It's red tape or it's government debt. I raised this thing about about poverty, uh, about the housing, about social welfare. I get to be honest, like my consistency office this morning. I guarantee you, I have people in my consistency mm. office this morning that haven't got a, a roof over their head, that haven't got any social welfare payment, mm. and don't need help. And you can ring the local authorities, and you'll be passed from Billy the Jack and everything yeah. else, which is totally wrong. You go to Minister Darwin, Brian up in the door, he says, go to the local authorities, oh, give me the information, give me yeah. the names and everything else. Uh, it's and, a vicious circle. And why are, we in, why, why are we in that situation before the refugees come? The refugees are coming. We're hearing this morning that the Russians are, are, are raping the girls and the women, So, uh, and then they kill them. So they're trying to get out, obviously, apart from uh, the civilian men who are being shot in the back of the head and all sorts of stuff. That, uh, it, it's a nightmare. They have to get out. They have to be looked after. Uh, Louth County Council has come up with 60 
16 places uh, and uh, they're preparing uh, a floor in a sports centre for up to 50 people to sleep on. It's unreal. Uh, but when we talk about the refugee crisis, on top of all of the problems that we have here, uh, undoubtedly that's going to cost more money and that's going to uh, feed into the rate of inflation as well, Peter Fitzpatrick. Uh, there's to be an information campaign uh, as well, which, as I understand it, is going to ask us to cut our cloth to suit our measure and we'll be asked to take shorter showers and to drive less and that sort of thing. What do you think about that? Michael, let's, let's go back, Michael. Uh, you, you talked about, as I said, yeah, there's a lot of goodwill in people in the, in the community. What we need to know, as I said, yeah, we, we have families in this area that were not the Dublin airport and talk back Ukraine in good faith. They were told by the government and by the local authorities to be looked after. I have families ringing me up and they can't afford to keep the Ukrainian people in their homes. And I've asked the Life County Council, I've asked the government, mm. what help? There's no help given. Like, these families can't keep surviving at the moment. So what do they do now at the moment? Did they put these Ukrainian families that come in in good faith to this country and was promised homes and everything else? Now, Michael, in fairness, they are getting the social welfare, they are getting free yeah. GP, and they are getting schooling. But the families who've taken these in in goodwill and good faith have been left to pay the bills. As I said, yeah, hundreds of millions I'm being told has been spent, and the only people that profit here for this at the moment is, is hotels and B&Bs. The normal person, the, the person who, who, who wants to do something to help the Ukraine. And you said in the beginning of your programme about these poor people leaving their families behind, being raised mm. at the moment. Mm. Mm. We, we, as a, we as a country should be very proud of what we're doing. But the government and the local authorities are letting us down badly. Social welfare, the whole thing has to... So that package not being put together is there's too many false promises. And I keep telling you, the two words I have at the moment in your programme this morning is it's fuel poverty and profiteering, and the government, the local authorities, are doing absolutely nothing about it. Okay. It's about time, it's about time we all put a shoulder to the wheel and all stood up and, and, and forced the government and the local authorities to do something like it. All right, Peter Fitzpatrick, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. That's Independent TD for Loud and East Mead, Peter Fitzpatrick. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, thanks uh, to Jimmy in County Meath. And uh, Jimmy says, what about all of uh, the empty parochial houses? There's one in my parish which has been empty for 10 years. Thanks, Jimmy. It's a, a good suggestion. It's the kind of thinking uh, that people are asked to engage in. Indeed, local authorities, uh, we're supposed to be on a war footing. Uh, it's clearly not the case uh, in some local authority areas. Uh, and somebody else says uh, they can't look after their own, let alone the refugees. Another text uh, from uh, someone who says the cost of coal has skyrocketed in the last couple of weeks. Uh, these coal companies are profiteering on a large scale. And to compound the issue, the Greens are going to add carbon tax onto fuel. In May, there should be no carbon tax on smokeless fuel. People using better fuel for environmental reasons are being penalised for doing the right thing. And this is just uh, another tax. Uh, this is uh, the type of policy that will destroy the country, says our caller. Thank you indeed. Now, let's go to Dublin Airport, as you know. The country has been made a laughing stock by Dublin Airport because if you're travelling through the airport, uh, you're being advised to get there three or four hours before your flight is due to take off because it could take you that long to get to the gate. Darren O'Rourke is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on transport. He's also a member of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Transport and he's on the line from Dublin Airport. Good morning to you, Darren O'Rourke. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. You're there with other members of the committee to find out what's going on. Yeah, that's it, uh, Michael. Um, I'm just at Dublin Airport this morning, um, and 
people will have seen, uh, particularly last weekend, the weekend of the 25th, 6th and 7th, um, absolute chaos at, at Dublin Airport. Um, literally hundreds of people missed their flights because of the of the queues, of the delays, uh, of the you know just complete mismanagement of the of the situation, and and um, that was really uh, frustrating for people. And, and as you said, you know the images of queues and queues continued, and including up into into this week, weekend. Um, from my perspective, uh, it's clear that that it's a case of, of mismanagement. People will have heard that. During the COVID uh, period, a thousand staff were let go under a, a voluntary severance package, and the airport uh, admits the management at DAA at the airport admits that they underestimated by twenty to thirty percent um, the return to international aviation, and that to me um, is is quite an incredible admission for for the the, the aviation for, for the yeah. airport to make because. It was quite clear to uh, anybody um, who was was paying attention that international aviation was one of those things that that people really missed during the COVID period and were anxious to get back. Uh, People had put off plans. And and they also, or we as a country, have a a problem because they offer terrible working terms and conditions, it would seem, to a lot of people at least. And that's why they're finding it difficult to recruit. Uh, You have to be available to work 40 hours a week night and day, 24-7. That includes weekends and bank holidays. But you're only guaranteed... Now, so you're on call all of the time, but you're only guaranteed 20 hours uh, of work in any given week, and that would pay you €283. Euro. Who would do it? Uh, absolutely, Michael. And that's... The, you know, I, I think, you know, there's a real question here in terms of, you know, never... What they, what they say in terms of never waste a, a, a good crisis... Um, there seems to be a case here that um, the terms and conditions of, of employment now have significantly reduced. As, as you said, um, uh, only a commitment of 20 hours a week in the region of €283, Euros, which is only slightly above minimum wage. And, and the Dublin Airport Authority uh, um, stand over that position and uh, expect some sort of credit uh, that it's that it's not at the minimum wage, and I think that's you know uh, that that's a statement in and of itself. Mm. Um, I think it's 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 clear. You know there are other issues uh, in fairness in terms of new standards have been introduced, and there has been I think a recalibration of the of the the the, the, the screening uh, facilities and that. But you 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 will not get the staff, you will not recruit the staff unless they're they're decent yeah. terms and conditions. This is a, this so is now a, they're juggling uh, balls. Uh, is there a security risk to the country because? of how the DAA is staffing security at the airport uh, because it, uh, anybody who works for the Dublin Airport Authority now, no matter what their job is, have been told that they must do two four-hour shifts in security, checking people coming into the country and going out of the country. And this is not necessarily uh, with training. I think there's an option of a couple of hours training for people, uh, but they have to do the two hours or the two four-hour shifts, uh, uh, and there's no option in that. Uh, And you're talking about people who have no experience and quite often no training who are making sure that people aren't taking bombs or guns or drugs or whatever into the country. 
Well, well, that's something we're certainly going to raise this morning. I'm sure other committee members will do the same this morning uh, when, when we meet with the, the DAA. Um, I think there are very real questions in relation to that. My my, my hope, uh, and, and f- from from, uh, from from speaking to people in the, the terminals who work there, is that people have been redeployed, but when they're redeployed to security, they're more you know, advising people, take your belt off, uh, you know, un- unpack your bag, take the liquids out, uh, uh, present the liquids in such a way as opposed to literally doing the, the screening. Um, if if it was the case, Michael, as, as you're presenting, that they were literally doing the screening, I think there would be very serious questions to be raised there. And that's something that, that I'll be happy to explore with the, the airport authorities this morning. Well, I, I, I'm not saying that they're necessarily doing the screening. I'm saying that they're part of the security workforce, uh, uh, the, the people who are, uh, and maybe it is advising people to take their liquids out, but I'd have thought that the, those people had the power to arrest. Uh, I wouldn't have thought that they were uh, uh, accountants or, or uh, bookkeepers or whatever the case may be. For, for sure, and, and that's the type of redeployment that is happening. Like, one thing that, that is absolutely clear is that this is a crisis situation, and we're you know, next week we're into Easter break. Uh, um, very many, you know, huge numbers will will have significantly increased numbers will have have planned to travel next week to get away for the Easter break. Um, we will be seeking reassurances as as best as we can uh, this morning at this meeting that there are additional plans in place because we know a thousand staff were let go. Only 100 have been recruited since the start of the, the year. There is a, a very significant uh, deficit there in terms of staff. They say there's 600 security staff in place. They need 900, so that's a, a, a huge uh, deficit there. They won't be in place for next week. Um, we're, we're going to be asking the question, what the DAA are going to do to ensure that we don't have the type of chaos that we had last weekend um, in, in, during the Easter break with, with families missing uh, holidays and you know many yeah. have saved up for a long time um, missing those holidays and, and it's, it's our international it's reputation I mean I, I don't think I was overstating it saying that uh, the airport is making a laughing stock of uh, the country I'm sure there's plenty of people who spent time in Ireland for St. Patrick's Day for example and missed their flights or were very stressed uh, before they got their flight if they were lucky enough to catch their plane uh, and I mean what's the message that they're going to bring home with them don't go there. It's just crazy. Absolutely. No, that, that is it. Like, between Dublin Port and Dublin Airport, there are uh, biggest transport infrastructure in, in this state. Um, you know, there, we, we're an island nation. We're hugely dependent on, on, on aviation. Um, we need this facility to be, to be run to the highest standards. It, it has, it had a, a very good track record. That needs to, needs not to be scuppered now for want of you know some race to the bottom and you know efficiency in terms of of cost saving measures. The, the staff need to be put in place. They need to be on decent terms mm. and conditions to attract them and to to retain those staff. And the airport runs needs to be run to the highest standard. Did I hear them saying it would take sixteen weeks uh, to employ someone between training and vetting and whatever? I mean, if they can take someone off a desk in an office and tell them to go down and check people going through security, whether it's to take their belt off or whatever, can they not do it quicker? Uh, well, it absolutely needs to be. I, I think the, the case is, and from listening to some of the, the responses to the committee in written form from the DAA, they indicated that there are new measures from a European level, regulations introduced at the start of the year, that means it takes six to eight weeks to, to recruit 
staff and to, tra- to train staff. Um, so, so that will add on to the existing recruitment process if it takes six to eight weeks to train them. Really, one of the questions we'll be asking this morning is um, what is the quickest possible time frame? You know, for example, if mm. it takes six to eight, six to eight weeks to train, does, how many days of training is that? Can they all be done in block? Do they have to be done separately? Mm. Is what, what practical measures can be taken to run that system as efficiently mm. as possible? Could, staff, could you not work two or three days a week doing what the girl in the office is being asked to do now and ask people to take off their belt and maybe get training for the other two days? Exactly, exactly. So, so, so in, in practical terms, what's the quickest way that you can get people recruited and in place in mm. position? Because the situation at the minute, Michael, as you say, there, there are people redeployed from, from office jobs, from, you know, important mm. work, you might be sure, elsewhere, but put on to, put into the, the, the security role, which is, which is really important in and of itself, as you said, in terms of particularly that, you know, last line, first line of defence in terms of, of you know what could go wrong in terms mm. of importation or 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 or, or, or that type of whatever. Thing. Yeah, somebody wants to know if you'd agree with Michael O'Leary and put the army in uh, to get us over this crisis. Well, that's certainly one of the questions that we will be raising with with the airport authority this morning. You know, I think in terms of of this weekend, um, you know, the, the the weekend of the first, second, third of of April, the there has been a significant improvement and that should be acknowledged and it is important to see that. Um, the, the airport authority are still telling people to arrive three and a half hours, which is a significant inconvenience for, for people. But from accounts over the weekend, mm-hmm. people are getting, you know, it's a half an hour to get to security, a half an hour to get through security. That should really be, that, that's double the time it, it should take. Um, I want to hear from the airport authority about what their plans are to address those waiting times uh, and I want assurances in the run into to Easter that mm-hmm. it is in hand. And if and uh, um, if if you don't get those insurances, assurances, well, then I think the option of of uh, additional capacity from other state agencies needs to be on the table. Okay. Well, as you say, you're there along with other members of uh, the committee to ask those questions in the airport today. And thank you indeed for joining us. That's Darren O'Rourke, Sinn Fein's. Uh, party spokesperson on transport and a TD for Meath East. Michael Reed on LMFM. How to achieve net zero emissions uh, by 2050 could well be too tall a task. We've certainly got an awful lot of work to do and how to commit to cut emissions from the energy sector, agriculture and land, cities, buildings, industry and transport over the next eight years will be spelt out in a major report from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It is the third Uh, of uh, three major reports published by the IPCC over the course of uh, the last eight months. And let's talk now to Dr. Breed Walsh, who's policy coordinator with Stop Climate Chaos Coalition. Good morning to you, Breed. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, The objective over this term uh, is to stop uh, global warming uh, by going over 1.5%. There's a a lot to do, quite obviously, uh, but there's going to be particular focus on fossil fuels and the use of fossil fuels and a change of behaviour over the course of the next few years in this report today, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And look, this report, it. It's part of the sixth assessment report. So these reports, these IPCC reports, they come out every you know seven or eight years and they bring together all of the scientific studies that have been published in that time. 
So this report, the third one, is focusing on uh, climate mitigation. So what are the actions that we can take to actually bring down emissions? The previous two focused on climate science and the working group two focused on climate uh, impacts and adaptation. Uh, so in terms of fossil fuels, yeah, look, um, the report hasn't been published yet. It will come out later this afternoon. I think the, the deliberations are proving quite difficult. It was supposed to be out this morning. So we don't know what's in it yet, but I imagine that uh, it will, it is likely to uh, say that global fossil fuel production must decline like, immediately and steeply. Mm. Uh, so this would require then that we, you know, existing fossil fuel infrastructure is phased out, right? as of now, you know, going forwards from now, and that new capacity should be commissioned. Because um, the thing is, like, we're not going to be able to stay below 1.5 degrees of warming by 2030 if the existing fossil fuel infrastructure, and I'm talking now globally, yeah. if that continues to operate. We'll yeah. be above 2%, and, and that half percent uh, makes a very significant difference. A, a massive difference. Yeah. An absolutely massive difference. Like the thing is, look, we are going to exceed. So the, the thresholds that have been set through the IPCC uh, process, it's 1.5 degrees of warming, mm. right, above pre-industrial levels, and then two degrees of warming above pre-industrial. We were going to start to see catastrophic pretty much. And mm. I know that, that maybe that's a lot for a, a Monday morning, but catastrophic impacts beyond that 1.5 degrees. Yeah. Well, cities literally you know, falling into the sea, flooding, drought, famine, yeah. uh, people yeah. moving across the world as a result. Wars quite possibly, uh, apart from the environmental uh, effects, uh, and it is as serious as that uh, according uh, to the people who are looking at this. And this is uh, not a, a report that uh, can be underestimated in terms of the expertise. There's 278 scientists from 65 mm-hmm. countries who work on this and they've been saying for a long time that we have yeah. to do something and do something now. Uh, time has run out uh, effectively, hasn't it, Breed? Uh, but do you think that we will do something? You have to be hopeful, I think, in my field. I've been in the climate science renewable energy field since 2001 Um we are moving in the right direction. You know, if you think about renewables, let's just take that example. I mean, they're developing at pace. They're cheaper than fossil fuels now. That is the future, you know. And we are, we are the market, I think, is actually moving, if not, if it not has already moved beyond fossil fuels, it is moving beyond fossil fuels. Um, so that's a very positive thing. Um, I think last year we installed globally 290 gigawatts of renewables. That's massive. Like Ireland, our peak demand here in Ireland is about five gigawatts. When mm. everybody comes home at six o'clock, turns on you know, the ovens and we're all home from work, that's the amount of power that we need. So to be installing 290 gigawatts a year is absolutely massive. Um, so we will get there. Uh, I suppose the question is, will we be able to hold the warming to below 1.5 degrees? Mm. Will um, we be able to heat our homes if we do get there? Will we be able yeah. to afford a car if we do get there? Uh, exactly. there's, a very, there's a very interesting story in the Irish Times today. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but the Environmental Protection Agency has bought eight diesel SUVs since 2016, the latest of them uh, they bought last year. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, look, these, the, the, the end is nigh, I suppose, for, mm. for diesel SUVs and SUVs in, in general. Um, look, in terms of... But there's an awful to, irony in that, isn't it, for the Environmental Protection Agency to be using fossil fuel-powered vehicles uh, to do their work. Yeah, there is. And look, I think in terms of heating homes as well, like you brought up that point, mm. um, yes, uh, the government is doing something, which is really good, you know, but this €200 Euro rebate for electricity, you know, it doesn't go far enough. And it doesn't target those that are actually in need you know, uh, low-cost attic insulation is important, cavity insulation is important, but we have to scale that up. And all energy-poor households, they should be able to have this installed 
at a minimal or no cost by this winter. So what we need this year, in just brass tacks, mm. we need 100,000 energy upgrades this year, mm. not the 27,000 that are planned. Mm. Like the 80% grant for attic and cavity wall insulation that's available now through the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland. Um, yes, that's good, but it should be increased to 100% again for those who are on lower incomes or those who are at risk of fuel poverty. So, you know, we cannot create this two-tier um, heating system, you know, this heating sector, whereby you have like higher income households who can take these measures to reduce their reliance on fossil fuels. They can invest in energy efficiency. They can retrofit their home. They can have microgeneration, their solar PV panels, all of that. And then we have lower income households who are left to struggle in, you know, older buildings and that are, that are dependent still on fossil fuels. And the price of that is not going to, you know, the, the price has increased. Gas price has gone up 600% in 2021. Yeah. And there's mm-hmm. no sign of that slowing. No. So this has well, to be a fair transition. Yeah, that is key, you yeah. know? There may and be no gas. We, we may be rationing gas uh, uh, and uh, we certainly will be paying more, it seems, if this war continues. Absolutely. Um, I could see that happening. Um, so this is why it's all the more important that we take action now, we reduce dependence on fossil fuels now, right? Because renewables will give us, renewables plus energy storage, plus maybe some green hydrogen thrown in there, mm. that will bring, that will give us energy security. It will give us cheaper electricity bills in the long term as well. Yeah. You but know? So who's going to do the work? That, there's a lot of work to do. Yeah. Um, and there has always been, you know? And um, I mean, look, I think when I started in this sector 20 years ago, I thought, which, you know, you know, you think, oh, by 2020, what will that world look like? It'll be amazing and we'll be, you know, clean energy for all. And we haven't got there yet. But I do think the tide has shifted. I do think the tide has shifted. Um, mm. So it is, but the government needs to do more, right? We need more grants. We need faster pace uh, of rollout. Um, that, that's yeah. really important, you know. Yeah. Well, when were those grants announced in February, I think, if I'm not mistaken? Um, I thought they were going to have these one-stop shops uh, available in March. I'm just looking at uh, the SEAI website now because they then said it would be the middle of March uh, and now they're saying it'll be the end of March, uh, which is yeah. about now, isn't it? <laughs> or gone it by. Be, it should be, it's gone by now, I think, as of, as of this morning. Yeah. Look, again, it's really important that that needs to be progressed. Everything mm. needs to be happening at pace now. Yeah. You know, we have the technology. The technology is there. Yeah, we, we obviously have, don't have know. the work people, though, you know. That is it. Yeah. So we need people who are skilled, who can roll out the retrofitting of homes. You just need massive investment. We need more people. Okay. Uh, we're, we're going to uh, be told, I think, in no uncertain manner uh, what uh, the upshot of it will be and how to go about it, whether we live up uh, to that challenge or not is another day's work when that IPCC report is published later. Breed, thank you, though, for joining us this morning. Thank you, Much appreciated. That's Dr. Breed Walsh, Policy Coordinator with Stop Climate Chaos Coalition. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, a tractor on the phone to us uh, this morning saying, I'm after listening to Michael saying something like, we've been told to cut our cloth. I'd like to know how many people in the doll have to cut their cloths. People, she says, are finding it very hard. And Attracta adds uh, that she's all in favour of helping Ukrainian refugees, but she'd love to see thousands of Irish children housed first uh, who are homeless. Thanks uh, for that. Uh, Attracta, uh, another call 
uh, to us uh, this morning from Michael in RD, who was listening to the discussion on the cost of living and indeed the cost in uh, energy prices. He says uh, people have a choice. Uh, look at the government and uh, the policies. Uh, he's saying that are being pushed particularly by the Green Party carbon taxes and all of this stuff is pushing up the price and asking people to spend €25,000 on retrofitting their homes by electric cars. Michael says all of this is cloud cuckoo land. People don't have the money to be able to do these things in the first place. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts with us, Michael. Mick and Kel says he's going to have to let the coal man go. Uh, that's a frightening thought. I hope everybody is uh, going to manage somehow uh, we're to get uh, some respite, it seems, uh, through some measures uh, that uh, Minister Raymond Ryan will be uh, announcing uh, in terms of electricity prices and that sort of thing in the coming days. Eric says the government should be sending tents to the Ukrainian border. Uh, so that when uh, the war is over, people can move back home uh, easier. Uh, thank you indeed, Eric, uh, for sharing your thoughts with us. And thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us so far today. Now, if you're listening to us in Navin and you know how you can make Navin a better place to live in, a better place to work in, a better place to run a business or raise a family and grow old, uh, well then you'd be very welcome, I think, at a public meeting that's taking place on Wednesday of uh, this week in the Ardboyne Hotel. It's being organised by local Finnegale councillor Yemi Adenuga, who's on uh, the line. And a, a very good morning to you, Yemi. Thanks as always for joining us on uh, the programme. Stronger, safer communities in Navin is uh, the banner for this meeting. Uh, who are you hoping will attend and what are you hoping to uh, achieve through getting these ideas from people how can they be put into practice thank you very much michael and uh, thanks for having me this morning well i'm hoping that everyone who lives within the Navajo community and who's available on the day will be able to share their ideas and their thoughts i mean in recent times i've had people with concerns come to me about safety in our community um, if, you, if you think back to the pandemic, uh, there was sort of a decrease in some of uh, the crimes in, uh, in our communities. And I'm on the JPC, and in one of the meetings when we asked why there was this decrease, um, one of the reasons shared was that because people were at home, uh, crime rates, I mean, say, for example, a burglar would, would um, think twice before uh, coming into a house, knowing that people are at home when we're in the lockdown. But since we've come out of the lockdown, there seems to be an increase again. So how do we ensure a safer, uh, a stronger community of nothing? And what I want to do with this meeting is to listen to the people. The people have a voice and the people have rights, and is to enable them to use that voice to talk about the issues, their concerns, their fears, their worries themselves, mm. and, um, and to take those concerns then to the stakeholders. Uh, it's not just about talking about the issues. It's also discussing potential possible solutions. So they say two good heads are better than one. And I think sometimes and um, we expect that government has all the answers. Government doesn't necessarily have all the answers all the time. Sometimes the people have. Um, ideas that can help governments make communities better. So this meeting is to enable people uh, bring forward the issues and it's focused on safety and security. I know people might mm. want to talk about other things, but there will be other meetings for that. Okay. So this, this particular meeting is to focus on safety in Navin and security. Okay, there's nothing unique about Navin in, in that sense, is there? I mean, it's no more dangerous than any other town in the country. 
I'll tell you something. Um, people, wherever you live in Ireland, your concern will be for your community. Mm. I live in Navan, and my concern is for Navan. Mm. And of course, at the end of the day... Oh, no, and I understand that. I, I just mean there's, yeah. there isn't a particular problem, is there? It's just the, the, the type of problems that people face around the country. Not that there's anything wrong with trying to tackle that, Yemi. Uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I'll give you an idea of some of the things that people have shared with me yeah. in recent mm-hmm. times. Mm. Open drug dealing, mm. you know, and even with our children, people are concerned about the future and the safety of our children. Mm. I mean, when people use kids to peddle drugs, before, you know, the kids will start to use them. They're concerned about the increase in domestic violence in our community mm. uh, of Melbourne. And I suppose it's the same across the country. Uh, but my constituent is Melbourne, and I'm concerned about my, my people in Melbourne. And so that's why we have to address this issue. I mean, look at property crime. In January of this year, uh, the number, the figures were about 113, which is an increase of about 24%. Um, Bulgari, uh, mm. uh was reported as of January, an increase of about 64%. You'd wonder how many so, drug users were breaking into houses, because it can be expensive to feed a habit, and that's quite often what happens to drug users. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, they were, uh, uh, when you look at uh, the drug sales, mm. they were, as of January, about three was reported. And the reports from the guards say that there's a decrease. Um, I'm not sure how those uh, reports were collated. But, and, and this is why this meeting is important, the feedback from the people is different from what the reports are saying. Mm. So it's being able to marry those two uh, disparities together and ensure that we're able to address them. Look, is it resourcing our guardians that we need? It's not, it's not about just increasing the numbers, but resourcing them to be able to tackle this crime and ensuring that they're properly trained and they're well able uh, to, to address some of the issues. So mm. whatever suggestions and solutions the people come up with, um, I, my, my job will be to bring this to the stakeholders and ensure that uh, the people's ideas and thoughts are addressed. Mm. Yeah, but if you've drugs uh, and you have the guardy policing it. I mean, if that's the approach, what do you do? Lock the drug users up where they'll take drugs in prison and come back out and break into people's houses again? So this is why we want to hear the people. I think we've been doing things the same old way. Michael and the recipe for disaster is if if you keep doing things the same old way and expect to get a different result. Mm. So that's why I'm asking people to come out. I, I don't want to be the one or I don't think that uh, at the stage, government should be the one saying this is what sh- um, should be done. Let's hear what the people's thoughts are. Mm. And I'm asking people to come on Wednesday, the 6th of um, April, which mm. is this, uh, three days from now at 7 p.m. at Adbon Hotel in Melbourne. Let's rub minds together. Let's mm. look at how we can... I think we give people, uh, the people in communities, we give them very little credit. This is the idea of this meeting, to hear them mm. and then bring the results to the stakeholders. Look, if we don't try, we don't know what the outcome might be. We can't give up, uh, Michael. Mm. What, what, what about women? Uh, are, are, do women feel safe walking around in Avon? That's another issue. At night, I mean, if you, if you look at, at women going out alone at night, a number of them would tell you that they're not safe. I remember one person, this was uh, before, the, just shortly before the pandemic. Uh, somebody I reported to me about being followed uh, after returning from the nightclub. 
and you know she was so scared she had to run and she was this person increased the pace as well women don't feel safe in our community how do we tackle that um i don't want to be putting forward the suggestions because the idea of this meeting is to hear the people and i'll keep reiterating that mm-hmm. because the voice of the people is important it's powerful they have their thoughts and ideas and it's important to hear them okay well, and I'll, I'll, I'll really encourage women as well to come you know so they can course. share mm-hmm. their, their yeah. fears and their concerns all right well we, we look forward to hearing back from you uh, and hearing what people have to say to you they can meet Absolutely. you at seven o'clock in the ardboyne on wednesday to share their thoughts with you yemi thanks for joining us uh, this morning it's always a pleasure that's uh Yem- Yemi Adenuga, Finnegale councillor on Meath County Council. Michael Reed on LMFM. The new leader of uh, the Labour Party, Ivana Bakic, uh, joins us now. Good morning to you and uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. It is our first opportunity to speak to you since you became leader of Labour. So let me begin by uh, offering congratulations to you. Uh, you must be delighted at, at taking on uh, this role. I think I spoke to you a couple of months ago uh, and uh, you said it wasn't something that you would have envisaged in the short term, how things have changed. Well, indeed. And good morning, Michael. And thank you for inviting me on your show again. It's good to be on. And uh, yes, I am honoured and uh, really grateful to the members of the party for backing me so strongly and to our great local councillors and area reps around the country too. But I am, of course, also somewhat overwhelmed. It has happened swiftly, as you say, and I certainly hadn't anticipated this. But it's, you know, in, often in politics, things do happen, events happen quickly. And and, uh, and certainly I'm very honoured and excited about the challenges ahead. There are challenges ahead and we're at a very difficult time, clearly, both at an international level with the horrific war in Ukraine and nationally with the really serious increases in the cost of living and so many people feeling squeezed and indeed with um, the climate crisis facing us as well and I know there's going to be a report on that produced by the UN later today. So there are many challenges but it's also a time I think where the Labour voice is strongly needed and I'm looking forward to putting that, uh, putting the case for that very mm. strongly and for building and growing support party and the values of equality and solidarity that we stand for over the coming weeks and months. What is that? What is the Labour voice or or, or what does it say? Because I I think some would have thought uh, that in recent years uh, there's been an identity crisis of sorts. How would you define the Labour Party? I define us as the centre-left, the strongest centre-left progressive voice in Irish politics. We we are a party of strong socialist and social democratic values. As I said, equality is the reason, the the drive for equality is the reason I joined the party 30 years ago and why I continue to be a member. And I think that's the impetus that has brought that brings most people to the party. We are also, of course, the political wing of the organised labour and trade union movements. We have a strong track record on workers' rights, on the rights of people at work, of working people, and and also, of course, on economic and so and social measures to bring about equality. So that means things like a fair taxation system, redistribution of wealth to ensure that people's needs, those with most needs, are uh, are met by the state. And and indeed, we're a voice for strong state intervention. And I think that in the COVID pandemic, more than ever, we saw the need for that strong state intervention for public uh, funding to be de- to be uh, delivered to ensure that we have 
proper childcare, proper healthcare, proper education, and indeed that we see a real delivery of climate justice measures. So Labour stands for that centre-left constructive vision for politics that's built on social democracy. And we look around Europe and we're, mm. of, of course, the Irish party that is the member of the Party of European Socialists, and we see there's a strong international momentum behind that sort of politics that says there's a strong space here for state funding, for more nurses, for more teachers, for better services. And we need that now as we come through the pandemic, as we see the crisis, as I say, of Ukraine, of the cost of living increase. We see the need for strong state interventions to to ensure people have their basic needs met. And we know in loads of areas that's not the case currently, particularly on housing, where in my own constituency in Dublin Bay South, but across the country, we see, and in Laos and in Drogheda, and I know Jed Nash, my colleague, our Laos TV, has been making this. Never heard of him. I I was going to say, Michael, I know he's no stranger to your show. Never heard of him. Uh, uh, Your listeners will be well aware of Jed's work, but, you know, all of us Mm. are are seeing the need for housing and for supports for housing, but Mm. also for supports for parents whose children are facing crisis, long delays in getting places for children with autism, long delays in getting just necessary treatments for children with scoliosis. And Mm. these are delays and issues that parents and families and households should not have to face in 2022 in what is a relatively prosperous country, but where we haven't seen enough emphasis on state funding and on investment in public services like healthcare, like housing, like education, and indeed, you know, like ensuring a decent transition to uh, to a climate justice which doesn't see working people paying the, the price. So these are all. Do, the do you think that the Labour? Sorry for cutting across. Do, 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 do you think that the Labour leadership lost uh, sight of it, its core values? That it, it was blinded by the lights at uh, the cabinet table and the prospect of going into government and in return for seats in government, uh, it ditched its core values. Well, uh, Labour has always been clear that we are a constructive party that believes in delivering change. So we're not afraid to go into government. And I think, unfortunately, there are perhaps too many uh, parties and individuals who call themselves left-wing, but who are content to shout from the sidelines and have not and will not take up the challenge of going into government. It is a challenge. Mm. And I mean, I think you're speaking about the last time Labour were in government, which clearly was a time of unprecedented mm. challenge, when the outgoing Fianna Fáil Green Party government in 2011 had bankrupted the country. And people and called Labour Fine Gael light and it was very hard to argue with that when Brendan Hallam was uh, on television telling low paid workers that paying an extra five in PRSI would be the best value for money that they could ever enjoy. Well, can I say this, Michael? Your listeners will recall that in 2008, unfortunately, uh, all of the other parties except Labour backed the bank guarantee that guaranteed the banks that created that fateful vote in September 2008 brought about the appalling and unprecedented financial crash and the bankruptcy of the country that faced the incoming government in 2011. And that government did, you know, there were Labour ministers clearly who took measures that no Labour minister would ever wish to take in normal times. But it was also government that coming that coming out of office in 2016 left the country having come through bankruptcy and in a much better place financially. We have now been out of government longer than we were in it and indeed the people did, did have their say uh, in 2016 and again in 2020. It is now time to move on and I would say that what really people want to hear now and what we saw in, the, in our by-election mm. last summer the only contest uh, I should say that has taken place electorally in this country since Covid hit. Yep. In that election which I was so honoured to win, you know we saw from people daily and heard from people daily that they what they want to hear now is positive, positive mm. measures from parties that are serious about delivering change and, uh, can uh, actually address the and they voted party. in their droves. In fairness, in the leafy suburbs, 
for Ivana Bakic. Uh, and uh, we can't hold you responsible for what happened in the past, but as the new leader of uh, the Labour Party, do you believe you're representative of uh, the Labour Party's constituency? Uh, I know that uh, as a young person you won a scholarship uh, and that was a wonderful thing for you, but as someone who went to a bri- private boarding school, can you really represent blue-collar workers? Well, I've said before that I think it's it's not a not a positive way to do politics to, to suggest that only people from a certain background or a certain class or or indeed of a certain gender are fit to represent others. I was proud to be elected in very uh, uh, very strong majority in the Dublin Bayside by election in a constituency that is in fact a very diverse constituency that covers quite a, a range of different urban areas in Dublin, and I was elected uh, as I say as a woman only the thirty seventh woman in the Dáil Éireann. And at a, you know, at a time when we might reflect that relatively recently it was mm. thought that no woman was fit to hold political office. So I don't really contest the idea that anyone, any particular individual because of their background or class or gender is somehow not fit to be a representative. And I would also, Michael, if I may say, yeah. contest, I would contest the stereotype of Dublin Bay South as a leafy suburb. The issues that we heard on the doors in Dublin Bay South and Jed was, and others were canvassing with me are the same issues that Jed was hearing about in Drogheda mm. and that our representatives were hearing about around the country. Issues about uh, huge issues around delay in treatments for children mm. Delaying waiting lists, lack of child care places, yeah. lack of early years education and care places, and that is a huge issue. The state needs to do far more to step up to ensure that children in Ireland have an equal start. And I've called for a Donna mm. O'Malley moment that you know is akin to the moment 50 years ago when the then Minister Donna O'Malley announced a free secondary place for every child in Ireland, which revolutionised education mm. and our society. And similarly, we need to see that vision now for early years education and care for young children at preschool age who are currently uh, facing very different starts in life because as any parent will know it's so difficult to get a crash place or a childcare yeah. or, or an early years or a Montessori place and when you do it's only partially state funded we know that staff in the sector are not being valued and paid enough and we know that providers are struggling so there's a real scarcity of places all around the country so these yeah. are the sort of issues that face are facing everyone every community whether it's in Dublin or Drogheda or Dundalk these are issues that are, sure. are common common yeah. across the country yeah. so uh, I think as Labour and as I mean you make, you, 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 you make a very valid point and I'm not trying to suggest that because of your background uh, that you can't lead the Labour Party but I'm just wondering if you can identify with the people that you purport to represent Uh, you've had a a privileged background uh, and there's nothing wrong with that that's a a great thing for those who enjoy it but do you understand what it's like not to come from a a background like that uh, to be on low pay as a payaye worker to uh, be on short hours to be on minimum wage have you ever been unemployed for example? I was briefly, as it happens, yes, in London, and uh, I was—I'm old enough to have uh, been of the generation who were uh, yeah. who, had, who uh, were told that there wasn't going to be room for us all in this country. But uh, but no, I, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm not going to suggest it was a long term or anything like that. But what I would say is this: that every day, as a TD, I meet and hear from and see, and and uh, are and contacted by individuals who have been uh, subjected to uh, low, who, are, who are enduring low pay, uh, many of whom have been uh, are having real problems with accommodation. And I suppose, you know, a couple of people in the last week have been evicted by landlords who uh, and who had previously, and often for reasons that are, you know, valid reasons and so on, but no, no, no suggestion of illegality. But the reality then is trying to find a new home to live in at an affordable rent on an income where it might have been enough to get by on with a lower rent, but they're finding that 
now they're utterly squeezed and their income is simply not enough. And that's why I've said as a lifelong trade unionist, I now believe that Ireland needs a pay rise, that the really most effective way and the, and the best way, the most sustainable way to meet increases in the cost of living is to ensure that there are uh, equivalent rises in pay and in income. And to be fair, many employers realise this and we're seeing employers in sectors where there's real shortages of highly skilled workers. We're seeing significant pay rises in the IT sector, for example, in hospitality where there's a real shortage of staff. So I think that's the reality that we need to address, you know, for those who are on low pay. What kind of pay rises should be granted this year, do you think? Well, the first thing we've called for is uh, an increase in the minimum wage to, re- to, rise, to raise the minimum wage by 30 cents immediately from 10.50 euro an hour to 80 and then to legislate to deliver on a living wage of 12 euro 90. So that's the first measure and that of course would address the people who are most chronically on low pay yeah, and, but, or, you know, in the But with electricity pay. increasing by 20, 30, 40% uh, depending on who your provider is uh, will that cut it? Uh, uh, I mean are, 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 It's not enough yeah. I mean, More yeah. needs to be done and we have also called for targeted measures we were critical of the government for the giving an across the board rebate on the basis that there should have been that money would to be better spent on targeted measures. Now, we do believe there is space to do both, to do a measure such as reduction in VAT, and indeed we've been calling on the government to clarify whether they've sought the derogation, the necessary derogation from the, the EU. The Taoiseach said last week he has sought the derogation. Yes, there's a lack of clarity as to, what, as to what happened as a result of seeking the derogation and I think quite a number of opposition parties were raising this issue with him. It wasn't clear from what he said whether he expects that derogation to be granted. If it is, then clearly there should be a temporary reduction mm. in VAT and that would... And if it isn't... And, and, well, if it isn't, then we need to look at more more targeted measures. We've called mm, for refundable okay. carbon you're, you're not tax suggesting that you would cut it and then bring it back to 23%, uh, which is what uh, would happen as a result, according that's to That's the government. danger. That's yeah. the danger, mm. exactly, that if we do it without the derogation, mm. it, it ends up... A, 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 costing more long run for people. We have also, though, Michael, called for a windfall tax on energy companies. And I do think there are, you know, these are the sort of measures that the government should be looking at beyond the, the key issues of enabling pay increases and of uh, ensuring that there are targeted measures around fuel allowance and refundable carbon tax credits that are geared at those households suffering real energy and fuel poverty. But we do also need to look at taxing the energy companies. So it's looking at measures at all levels to ensure the, uh, the, the, the energy prices can be reduced. And, of course, there's a huge piece here about uh, growing our own um, production of renewables. We know that there's a massive energy security crisis uh, with Russia, with dependency, particularly for Germany and, and other Central European countries on Russian oil and gas. We're not so exposed on that, but we do need, for environmental reasons as well as energy security reasons, to rapidly accelerate our offshore wind development. Um, and, you know, we've been passed legislation mm. on that, but many of us are pressing governments to do more and more quickly to grow our own renewable capacity because that's crucial okay. to ensuring that you know it'll mm. address the, co- the cost issue as well for, for all of us. The, the, these are all interlinked, the war in Ukraine, the environmental crisis and indeed the cost of living and energy crisis that we're facing. Can and I, the way to tackle this is also through joined up thinking. Can I ask you uh, about your ambitions from here? Uh, do you want to lead your party into the next government? Well, I've said what I've said very clearly, and indeed all my colleagues share this view, is that we shouldn't go into government unless we have a critical mass 
of, of TDs, of voters, to, of votes that would enable us to deliver on our policy commitments and our policy priorities. And that's a clear lesson, I think, for any party going into seeking to go into government. We are serious about wanting to deliver change. And so we certainly don't intend to sit on the sidelines forever. But we do need to grow our party and to grow our vote to ensure that we would have that critical mass and be able to have a strong influence and a strong um, momentum behind it. Okay, so how many TDs would you hope to have uh, elected in the next election? Well, I'm not going to give any uh, okay. any figures or yeah. hostages to fortune, but I will say this, that I'm heartened by increases in our opinion poll ratings since in the last couple of weeks, and I'm very heartened by the surge in voter, in, sorry, member applications we've had, new members, particularly women members joining us in, in really, really encouraging numbers. So I'm very heartened by that and by okay. the level of goodwill there is. And I think most people see there really is a need for a strong Labour voice. We saw that appetite for positive change and constructive politics come through in the by-election last summer. And we're seeing it now, you know, everywhere mm. I'm going, hearing from people who say they want to hear a Labour voice okay. and that positive change message come through. They don't want that binary choice of Fianna Fáil and Miguel on the right or just Sinn Féin on the other side. Mm. Or, 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 or Labour or, or Labour in the middle. <laughs> Uh, well, so, 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 let me just ask you one last question. Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sure you can make that point. Uh, but if I can just ask you one last question: Is there any political party in the country uh, that Labour under Ivana Backage uh, would not do business with? I've a long track record of working constructively with individuals and parties on issues where we have commonality, where we have common policy, certainly including government parties, of course. And I certainly intend to continue doing that. Um, but, you know, my priority and our challenge in Labour is to grow our own voice and to grow our support base and to grow the support for our values as a standalone party that stands for equality, that has a left-wing vision, uh, but is progressive and constructive about delivering change. And that's the key core challenge for us. So it's not about what other parties uh, can or do stand for. For us, it's about ensuring our voice and our policies are getting centre stage and that we are we are growing support for those as much as we possibly can. OK, well, look, congratulations to you once uh, again and uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. That's uh, the newly elected leader of uh, the Labour Party, Ivana Bakich. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. We believe that Russian forces have committed uh, war crimes and we've been working to to document that uh, to provide the information that we have to uh, the relevant institutions and organizations uh, that uh, will put all of this together. That's the U.S. American Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken. War crimes indeed, genocide. It seems almost certain. The Russians have acted in the most appalling of ways over the course of the last month or so. You remember the 24th of February, that's when the war started. There's uh, an incredible account of how life in Ukraine has been. You'll be hearing today a lot about Busha, which is a a town on uh, the outskirts of Kyiv. There's a personal story, a personal account given to the Guardian newspaper by Taras Shevchenko. And he says that at six o'clock in the morning on the 24th of February, from the vantage point of the kitchen window of his fifth-storey apartment overlooking Gostomel Airport on the northern outskirts of the Ukrainian town of Busha, Shevchenko watched as about 20 Russian helicopters flew into vision, spilling paratroopers onto the tarmac below. He felt he was in the movies and that all of the helicopters... 
uh, were just incredible. I even saw the faces of those paratroopers. This was the moment that the war began for Boucher, a town 55 kilometres northwest from Kiev, which is swiftly becoming synonymous with the worst atrocities of the war. The events that unfolded over the following days, Shevchenko said, were unimaginable. Bodies rolled over by tanks turned into human rugs. Russians shot dead, even the elderly who got in their way. Russian snipers shot the men who tried to escape across the fields. It's claimed and claims of the rapes and murder of young girls, which have yet to be independently verified, put terror in the hearts of those who remained. As witnesses have come forward, however, the photographic evidence of the bodies on Bush's roads has emerged from the newly recaptured territory and the claims of mass war crimes by the occupying Russian troops appear all too real. On Saturday, AFP reported 20 bodies, all in civilian clothing, had been found strewn across a single street, one with hands tied behind his back in a white cloth and his Ukrainian passport left open beside his body. All these people were shot, Bush's mirror said, adding that 280 other bodies had been buried in mass graves elsewhere in the town. Shevchenko, a martial arts coach, and his mother, a 77-year-old woman with whom he lived in Busha, recalled that it had gone quiet for three days after the Russians came in. They talked about what to do and whether they should escape. Uh, and few who decided to leave in the first day uh, were looked on by everybody else as overreacting, according to this article in The Guardian. The normality of the first 72 hours, he says, was an illusion. We saw them, the Russians, on the third day, when there was a massive shootout by our building with Bush's territorial defence. At first, he says, I decided to stay because I was thinking where to go. I had nowhere to go. There was fear, you know. Secondly, we aren't that rich to completely change our lives in one day. On the third day, he says, I realised it is too late to run away somewhere or change something because the war was literally around my house, on my street. There were tanks driving down my street. It's very frightening when they shoot. It's a, a, a sound you won't forget. A, a, such a sound, a roar. By day four, there was panic. Everybody was looking for ways out trying to find somewhere or a way out on the internet, Telegram or Viber. Anyone who had their own cars just fled, risking everything. Our building has 69 apartments and there are only four families remaining. His mother was terrified by the fighting on the doorstep, moved down into the block's damp, cold basement of just 20 square metres, lit only by candles, where she joined eight other families, including one three-year-old child and an 86-year-old woman. She'd stay there for 13 days and nights with only a bucket as a toilet kind of gives a, a, a real feeling of the fear and the terror and the hiding in the dark that uh, people have been living with. He says on the fifth day, people understood that we needed to boil water somehow or cook some soup or something. And by the entrance to the building, we made a kind of a cooking place. It was just a campfire with two bricks on the site. And the conversations by the fire were filled with talks of the latest dead dead bodies were just laying in the street. They didn't let us move them. He recounted one killing, which could not be independently verified, but he said there was a grandfather. He he was walking with his wife. They were about to cross the street. They were stopped by some Russians. You know how these old men are, and they just like to talk back and stuff. So they just shot him. And to the woman, they said, you just keep walking. She rushed, rushed to her husband and started crying and they said, if you want to lay next to him, we can shoot you too. She told them she needed to take the body, but they said, no, just keep walking. And she kept on walking, crying and walking. 
Uh, this apparently happened next door to a McDonald's, 30 or 40 metres away from this man's home. Indeed, this is genocide. The elimination of the whole nation and the people. We are the citizens of Ukraine. We have more than 100 nationalities. This is about the destruction and extermination of all these nationalities. We are the citizens of Ukraine, and we don't want to be subdued to the policy of Russian Federation. This is the reason we are being um, destroyed and exterminated and this is happening in the europe of the 21st century so this is the torture of the whole nation that's the ukrainian president vladimir zelensky uh, by the way uh, the president uh, will uh, address uh, the eructors on wednesday of uh, this week president zelensky was speaking uh, to cbs television the face of the nation uh, program and an interview that he, he did with margaret brennan talking about the genocide of people in Ukraine and these terrible stories that we're learning about today uh, where the Russians uh, really have got an awful lot to answer for. Uh, We're telling you a little bit about uh, this story that's carried in the Guardian newspaper of Taras Shevchenko uh, and his life in Busha, which appears to be one of the worst places that anybody could be in the world over the course of the last few weeks. Hell on earth it's been described. Uh, and the terrible things that has happened in Busha over the last month. Uh, eventually he said they were told uh, that uh, there would be a, a rite of passage uh, for women and I think most people in Busha tried to get out. The men were turned away. Uh, and uh, he said goodbye to his mother and all of uh, the other women from the town. And he, he goes on then to say there was just nothing else to do. He he, he left then and walked out of Busha along with another 20 men. Uh, and as they walked, because uh, there was no other way of trying to leave the town, uh, he says uh, that bullets started to buzz past them. Uh, some people were hit. They went down, they were hit and wounded. Others, including himself, ran and tried to hide from what were assumed to be snipers. And he said, we we couldn't even help the wounded because once you come close to someone who fell, uh, you knew you could be next, you could get shot too. There were fewer and fewer of us. I was constantly looking back and sideways and we didn't care about each other and didn't pay attention to each other. Just some animal instincts took over. He said he felt like it was a, a, a concentration camp escapee. As they escaped, and he, he did eventually escape, he went through a town called Irpin, uh, where there was more atrocities. Uh, he, he said uh, that uh, the mayor of the town said they had collected 17 dead bodies. Uh, and he says there weren't just 17, there were lots more. There were As he walked through the town, he was looking at bodies in cars, lots of them lying on the sidewalks, a lot of them squashed by tanks, like those animal skin rugs, and the smell was unbearable. They were laying like that for 10 days or so. Uh, this is in the Guardian newspaper, by the way, and it, it really um, gives a, a vivid a, a account of one personal's story. Uh, and how eventually then he got to Kiev and he said 
he, he, he got on a bus and, and he was taken to Kiev, 20 or so people. And he says that when he got to safety and some time passed, he, he felt like the whole thing had been a prank. He said, it just can't be 15 kilometres away and it's quiet. He, he escaped from Busha, 15 kilometres away, where there was this Armageddon. And he said he, he felt like he, he had been in the Matrix movie, like someone dragged me by my hair and threw me into the Matrix for 16 days and they've been watching how I act. And later... They felt sorry for me, pulled me out of there to the peaceful world, patted me on the head and told me, good, you survived. The civilians, the houses, they were stealing washing machines and equipment. So they were torturous as well. I think the clips that we shared with you, you have seen for yourself. It's important for the free people of the United States to have a look at it and understand and see for themselves. Before the war, when there was a lot of free time, we were watching different films and also war movies, but we couldn't have imagined anything like this because this is a maniac type of decision to dis- to destroy the whole nation. Well, in, in terms of the taxi- tactics and them pulling out and what the strategy of the of Putin is, they are now focusing in the east of Ukraine. So this corridor, which is going from the Crimea to the east of Ukraine, this is in the south of Ukraine, and this is where they are trying to focus in terms of armament, in terms of deploying the personnel, the Chechen troops, occupying the cities. They were bringing people from different parts of the world because they were in deficit of the personnel. And now they are grouping all of these troops in the south and east of our country. That's the president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, uh, speaking uh, to Margaret Brennan and uh, the CBS programme Face the Nation. Michael Reed on LMFM. We talked about that poll in the Sunday Independent yesterday, earlier in the programme. 65% of people say that the government's main priority should be the cost of living, housing, war in Ukraine, healthcare. They're all on the list. Very few people think Brexit is an issue for the government to prioritise. Just 1% of people, according to that poll yesterday, I think Paddy Malone figures amongst them. Paddy is the PRO of the Chamber of Commerce in Dundalk and he's on the line. A very good morning to you, Paddy, and thanks for joining us. Uh, Indeed, uh, Brexit uh, will be part of a conference, uh, an online conference uh, that you're holding on Wednesday of this week and the impact that it's going to have on tourism. Yeah, I mean, Brexit is just one of those things that just keeps on giving. Every time you look at it, you realise it's an even worse idea than you thought originally. Um, the latest is because of something that it's not quite directly related to Brexit, but it's it's the Brexiteers that are pushing the agenda of this um, nationality and borders bill that is going through the House of uh, it went through the House of Commons. The House of Lords amended it to make it more palatable and make it more workable. But the House of Commons has now rejected all of those suggestions, so it's back to the House of Lords, and all they can do is delay it for a couple of weeks, and then we're then we're into an act that says that anybody who is not Irish or British 
so say they're German or Lithuanian or Polish, if they're travelling between the, if they're travelling from Dundalk into Newry, they need a visa. Mm-hmm. I mean, and yet they're going to say they're not going to work it. I mean, you, you can't bring in a piece of legislation and then say, oh, but don't worry about it, we're not applying it. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't... That and and no, no, no different, I think it probably uh, is worth saying, if they were going to London, they'd need a visa, wouldn't they? They would need a visa, yeah. yeah. Mm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I they're, mean, they're, we they're entering into the UK, so uh, they may spend a few days in Dundalk, travel across the border, they need a visa. Yes. So, I mean, and even if you're talking with, say, a French tourist or a German tourist coming in here and they're uh, in, the, in the town, in Dublin, or they're in, even going up to Newgrange, and they say, well, there's another World Heritage site just a wee bit further on, and you can also, the Giant mm. Causeway, and you could also go into the Titanic Water. They can't. If you had a visa, you If you had a visa, yeah. you're yeah. fine. Mm. But how many, I mean, and the other problem with this is, if you're living in France and you're Germany and you're thinking of coming to the island of Ireland mm. on holidays and then you're told, yeah, but you're going to have to apply for a visa and you're going to have to go through a certain amount of rigmarole, it's going to put you off. Of you course. Might well, you might well just decide to go to Malaga for the holidays instead. You yeah, know? yeah. Is that a two-way street, by the way? Do the British need visas to no. go to your... No? Well, how, how is that? How does that work? Well, we've never... We have a common travel area. Yeah, no, but for yeah. to go to France or Germany or... Well, no, if the Brits, sorry, I beg your mm, pardon, yeah. if the Brits want to go to France, if, if a Frenchman wants to go to London, yeah, he needs a visa. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's... it's but does, it, does an Englishman need a visa to go to France? No. <laughs> Why is that? Because the EU have got some common sense. Ah. Uh. I mean, it, that is that is mm. effectively what this boils down to. Yeah. I mean, the British are now determined to protect the borders. I mean, the person who's bringing it in is pretty Patel. I mean, her own family benefited from the fact of the immigration policy that the UK had in the 1970s by allowing Ugandans into the country. Mm. Uh, and now she's now she's making life very difficult for people to even have a holiday in a, in a different jurisdiction. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we're looking at, Michael, which uh, is sort of like a wee bit in the distance, but let's suppose that um, the, the UEFA bid that we have now jointly made, the, the oh, yeah. English, yeah. the Scottish, yeah. the Welsh, mm. Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, have all bid to hold UEFA 28, I yeah. think it is. It's a very right? good point, yeah. yeah. And if, if we get it, we, we could end up in a situation where a, a, a team that doesn't expect to travel to Dub- doesn't you know a team based in Dublin that doesn't expect to be going to play in England suddenly finds that it has to go to Liverpool or has to go to Manchester. So fun if the captain of that team doesn't have a pa- uh, doesn't have a visa. Yeah, well, if I was coming from France or wherever, I'm sure I'd be reading the literature and it would say you'd need a visa, and I would look at it and. No matter what Paddy Malone or anybody else told me about, they're not policing it. I'd say, look, I'm I'm not taking the risk. No, I, I, you can't. No, because you could be arrested. You could be arrested. Yes, yes. I mean, you can't bring in laws and then say, well, we're going to ignore them. I mean, that's telling the general public that some laws are to be implemented and some laws aren't. I mean, you can't have an a la carte when it comes to it comes to law. If you bring in a leg- piece of legislation, it should be enforced. And if it's unworkable, you shouldn't bring it in in the first place. Mm. And what we're concerned about is we have trying to establish this region as a tourist destination. And we have some incredible things on offer, particularly the Gullion Cooley Moor Mountains. I mean, there's just nothing like it. I, I mean, I know that there's, there's that other place down in the southwest and around Killarney and all the rest of it. But we match it. Mm. And oh. 
we can't surpass it. We, I would think surpass it maybe, yeah. and we need. And, and, and access to it is an offer at easy up from Dublin and Belfast and the M1 and all that region. And there is a huge, particularly day tourism potential for the area. Now, Carlingford is already tapping into that and fair play to them. Mm. But there's more to it than that. And we could, we could take a lot, lot more. And whether that's in Greencastle or Green Ore or mm. whether it's in Uria, whether it's in Dundalk mm. or whether it's in Ravensdale mm. or the Boreen, we need that sort of... Yeah. Uh, Awareness, but we need it as a regional centre. And Cooley's not going to sell by itself. The Moans have a slightly better chance, but not much. We need this region. Yeah, to but you can't go to the Cooleys and the Moans if you're coming from France or Germany or whatever, as you said earlier on. But this is a problem that's out of our jurisdiction. Yes. Uh, and wouldn't it be great if you could, if you could, get those politicians in Stormont uh, to take a, a look at it, if nothing else? Well, exactly. I mean, I mean, one of the one of the things the friend of one of the members on our council is Pat McCormick, and he's a, a, a sailor, and he was making the point that if the ship, if, if if his sailing vessel is in Carlingford and he has a Dutch friend, he can't sail to Warren Point. Mm. Listen, that's a problem. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot of positives uh, talked about. There'll be a because, lot of positives. Yeah. I mean, what we're trying to do is to uh, inform the tourist uh, providers in this region. What's best practice? So have a look and see to, to have a look and see what they've done in other areas uh, and, and how they've gone about doing it. So mm. there's been a number of greenways and other things that have been well developed elsewhere, both in Ireland and in Britain, and that's the sort of thing we're going to be discussing. Give us the Green- details before we run out of time, Paddy. Sorry? G- give us the details. Uh, details if you want to are, it's yep. all on the website. So yep. Dundalk, if you go into the Dundalk Chamber Tourism Conference, you'll find all the details. It's for free, and it's any provider that wants to, that is interested in getting involved in this, and that provider could be an hotel, mm. a guest house, uh, on your bikes in, Car- in, in Carlingford, yep. or anybody else that's interested in the area. On Wednesday. On Wednesday, and it's, in the mor- it's a morning session. All right, thank you very much indeed. We have to leave it there because we are out of time. Thanks to Paddy Malone, PRO of uh, the Chamber of Commerce in Dundalk. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. 086 1800 658 The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by Airgrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.